This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is developing the qualities of our hearts. In the first half, Elder Ronald A. Rasband shares his address, Integrity of Heart. Then in the second half, Michael D. Brown speaks on The Lord Looketh on the Heart. I'm honored to be here with President Worthen and other administrators, faculty, and staff. And most of all, with all of you, the students of Brigham Young University. When I visit this campus, I am impressed that you are following your dreams of education and opportunity and living the standards of the Church. The Lord has special plans for you to lead in a world that needs your goodness your service to others, your educated minds, and your spirituality born of testimonies of Jesus Christ. When I was nearing the end of my college studies in marketing and business at a school up to the north, I I had an experience that shaped my direction. By divine design, I met John and Karen Huntsman. John was a giant of a man by every standard businessman, philanthropist, church leader, faithful husband, father of nine, a visionary, and a loyal, beloved friend of mine. As you may know, recently John passed away. In tribute, the First Presidency said of John, quote, We honor John as a cherished husband, father, and friend esteemed as a leader for his exceptional capacity, commitment, philanthropy, and service throughout the world. John said of himself, I made it to where I am today because of a solid faith in God and myself and with the unwavering support of my wife Karen and nine children. I made it because I come from good stock, a healthy ancestral mix of preachers and saloon keepers who provided potent DNA for embracing the values and accepting others who may not think the same as you do. This nation provides incredible opportunities, especially for those who are focused, tenacious, and willing to take risk." His passing has caused me to reflect on his tremendous influence in my life. John's story is one of rags to riches. He grew up in Idaho. He was poor. His father was a school teacher. John got a scholarship to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where he struggled his first two years, not taking his education seriously. Some of you may be in that pit this very day. When his father suggested he attend a school with an easier curriculum, he realized he was squandering the opportunity he had been given. He spent the next two years seriously studying and significantly surpassing his former performance. He graduated from Wharton with honors. Later, he served in the Navy, worked as a special assistant to the President of the United States, and began his professional career at an egg-producing company, where an idea for better packaging launched his multimillion-dollar empire. John built a company from scratch that resulted in 15,000 employees and plants around the world. 
He was always running for a plane, meeting with dignitaries and business icons. Looking ahead and in the process, he amassed a fortune. He was a billionaire featured regularly in Forbes magazine and other forums touting financial wizardry. In his 80 years, he left his imprint on business, medical research and hospital care, education, politics, and religion, and gave away for charitable causes one and a half billion, billion dollars. He was a man of great integrity. In 1976, I was the elders quorum president in my campus ward, and he was the high council advisor. He was already successful in his plastics business. I even remember him slipping me a personal check for $1,000 with the simple instructions, quote, use this to help those who are in need in your quorum, end quote. They were never to know where the money came from. After a year of working with him in that ecclesiastical setting, I was surprised one day when he asked me to come to his office. There I was in plush, professional business surroundings. Me, the son of a truck driver. When John invited me to join his company working in marketing and sales, I was honored. Sister Rasband and I had been praying for meaningful employment after graduation. Like many of you, I had a young family, and we were living on meager funds. John explained he was not interested in my academic credentials. That's a good thing. (laughs) They were not stellar, I assure you. But he had seen my strengths of leadership and character that were a good fit for his business. Those traits he observed were a strong work ethic and an ability to juggle the pressures of family, education, work, and church service. I came to learn they were his best traits. I immediately responded that his offer was an answer to prayer, and I would love to join his company after graduation in the spring. My college degree was so important to me, my wife, and my parents. He smiled, and then he said, I need you now. Next week, in fact. He explained he would be in Troy, Ohio, at one of his packaging plants to negotiate with a major customer. If I wanted the job, I needed to be with him as the new account manager for that customer. That was it. The job was next week in Troy, Ohio, or no job at all. That night, after seeking counsel from loved ones and friends, Sister Rasband and I prayed earnestly for direction. My dear wife, Melanie, was inspired with our answer. She said, Isn't this what people go to college for? To find an opportunity like this one? She asked me. We agreed that it was. The Spirit confirmed our decision, and we took the job in Ohio that next week. I left the campus of the University of Utah just two semesters short of receiving my degree. Eleven years later, I was surprised again when John Huntsman appointed me president of his global corporation with thousands of employees and billions in revenues. 
and still without that college degree. Now, I'm not recommending any of you skip that last important step. I hope you're all hearing that. I'm not recommending it. What did I learn from that beginning? I learned that marriage is a partnership and that you and your wife or husband are facing life together. For each of you, your spouse will sometimes get the inspiration for both of you. That is what happened in this launch of my business career. Sister Rasband and I learned early to counsel together. That spiritual aspect of our relationship and our trust in the Lord has been our foundation for these many years. I saw that kind of bond between John and his wife Karen. He and I would be somewhere in the world, and he would call home just to check in with Karen, who was holding things together with their nine children and extended family. She was his partner in every aspect of his life—family decisions, on stage, in the gospel, in the community—and that example was not lost on me. I learned John was a strong, powerful, and fair businessman who lived by clear-cut rules. He could compact two days of work into one. He expected me to work just as hard, get results, and be moral, ethical, and honest. Let me say that again. Be moral, ethical, and honest. Such integrity was everything to John Huntsman. A good measure of integrity is found in the 13th article of faith. We believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and in doing good to all men. If all the world would live by such standards, how different things would be. We would have fewer sensational news stories, more peace in homes, more respect in business transactions, less rancor in politics, more honor in our dealings with our associates, friends, and neighbors, and more compassion for those in need. Some would say integrity is an old-fashioned virtue. Certainly it stands in sharp contrast to luminaries whose lives make headlines but whose characters are sullied by devious, selfish, greedy, and lustful behavior. No question, my friends, integrity is a much-needed value in the world today. In the Bible, the Lord selected David of David and Goliath fame to care for Israel. The account states, He chose David and took him from the sheepfolds because of the integrity of his heart. End quote. And David guided the Israelites by the skillfulness of his hands. You are here learning skills that will help you establish the traditions in your homes and families, methods in your work, and contributions to society in general. Skill is important, brothers and sisters, but hearts guide hands. Jesus counseled his disciples, Wherefore, settle this in your hearts, that ye will do the things which I shall teach and command you. 
I saw that in John Huntsman. His heart was not hardened by hardship or sin, wounds of the past, or imperfect people. Most importantly, his word was his bond. Let me give you an example. Back in the 1980s, our young business was struggling. Earnings had plummeted in the recession. John decided to sell 40% of the company. He found a buyer, and after tough negotiations, the two fixed a price and shook hands on the deal. Six months went by while the necessary papers and contracts and terms were completed to provide a legally binding arrangement. During that period, the market turned. Our company's earnings climbed. Sales exceeded all previous levels. Wall Street analysts advised that the 40% agreed to earlier was now worth five times the original amount, and the lawyers took the position that the oral agreement was not binding, since no papers had been signed. Even the buyers, realizing the dramatic growth of the company, expected to pay a much higher price. No question we needed that extra capital as the company expanded. But John was a man of his word, and his handshake was no casual commitment. He informed the buyers and shocked the chemical industry with a decision to honor the original agreement. He would lose millions in the deal, but to him, a deal was a deal, and his handshake was his bond. Now, not everything John Huntsman touched turned to gold. We had our share of corporate nightmares and company boondoggles. He understood personal integrity is chiseled into place most often by adversity and challenges. Daily, all of us struggle with things that do not go as planned, that speak of heartache, disappointment, and failure. We cannot let ourselves be defined by them. I recall in the 1980s when we were operating a $30 million chemical plant in the Far East, just negotiating to open it. A government minister invited us to his home for dinner. He took us to see his fleet of 19 fancy cars given as gifts by foreign partners and foreign companies. Soon, a foreign partner of ours suggested John make a yearly kickback to the minister of $250,000 a year. John responded that he had no intention of paying even five cents toward what was nothing more than extortion. Rather than bow to the minister's demand, he sold the plant and we moved the operation. We lost millions of dollars, but word spread Huntsman would not succumb to demands for fees, and such demands were never made of us again. Many of you will be asked in the years ahead to bend the rules, to grease the wheels, to look the other way, to compromise. It may not be a million-dollar deal. And some may assume that is the way things are done these days. But your integrity will be on the line, and the price will never be worth it. 
Integrity in business, in spiritual and family matters, all draw from the same well of strength, our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Think again of King David. I mentioned earlier that the Lord chose him because of his integrity. But David was tempted, wanting the wife of one of his soldiers and officers. He arranged to send the man to the front lines, knowing he was sending him to his certain death. What of King David's integrity then? The Lord withheld from him the blessing of building a temple, giving it instead to his son Solomon. Everyone is vulnerable unless the decision is made in advance to never compromise principles, come what may. President Brigham Young taught, This people must become sanctified in their affections to God and learn to deal honestly, truly, and uprightly with one another in every respect, with all the integrity that fills the heart of an angel. Brigham Young knew of what he spoke. In Kirtland, several of the twelve witnesses to the Book of Mormon and other leaders met in the temple to plan how to wrest control of the Church from Joseph Smith. It was a time when the knees of many of the strongest men in the Church faltered. Dissatisfied with the financial situation in the Church, they intended to appoint David Whitmer the President. Brigham Young rose up in a forcible manner, told them that Joseph was a prophet. Quote, they might rail and slander him as much as they pleased, but they could not destroy the appointment of the prophet of God. End quote. Brigham later wrote, During this siege of darkness, I stood close by Joseph, and with all the wisdom and power God bestowed upon me, put forth my utmost energies to sustain the servant of God and unite the quorums of the Church. End quote. Brothers and sisters, my friends, where do you stand today? Can the Lord count on you and your integrity as a true member of His Church? Is President Nelson in your prayers and are His words guiding you? Do you believe in Latter-day Revelation? Remember the admonition of the Lord in the Doctrine and Covenants. Whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. As a Church, we are facing challenges to religious freedom, to sacred doctrine determined by God whose Church this is. What of the Holy Covenants you have each made? Do you truly stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all places and in all things? As we see the standards of the world collapsing in every direction, we are often required to stand strong and defend our faith and uphold the integrity of the gospel. Remember the admonition in Helaman that being built on the rock of our Redeemer who is Christ, the Son of God, the approaching mighty storm shall have no power over you to drag you down, 
because of the rock upon which ye are built. How would you describe your integrity to the cause of Jesus Christ? The Lord said of Hiram Smith, the prophet Joseph's brother, And again, verily I say unto you, Blessed is my servant Hiram Smith, for I, the Lord, love him because of the integrity of his heart, and because he loveth that which is right before me, saith the Lord. I assure you, no accumulation of wealth, recognition, position, or popularity can supplant a heart full of love for the Lord's ways and God's children. Lovest thou me? The Savior asked his disciples when they had gone a-fishing. Peter responded, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And the Lord said, Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Integrity of purpose to the Lord's work is to love as he loved, essentially to feed his sheep with kindness. When Jesus called from the shore to the disciples who had returned from fishing, he told them to throw their nets to the other side. So it is with us. We are most successful when we do things the Lord's way. As he's told us, we are here to feed his sheep. You have people who depend on you who need you, who will be blessed by your attention. Leave here today recognizing that your morality, your ethics, and your honesty is driven by the way you treat people. I saw that in John Huntsman. He was as much a friend to a homeless man in a soup kitchen as to a dignitary at a state dinner. Think of the Savior in his last hours, scourged and nailed to a cross. He could have lashed out in anger, but he didn't. His words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His kindness and compassion overrode mortal emotion. Again, he is ever our exemplar. Assess with me for a minute how you see and exercise integrity right now. Do you choose to stand in holy places and be not moved? What does it mean to you to hold a current temple recommend and count it a privilege? Do you seek peace and comfort in the temple? Is the temple worship of our Father in heaven and His Son Jesus Christ part of who you are? Do you pray for promptings to help someone the Lord knows needs assistance? Or is your schedule just too busy? When you make a mistake, do you deny it or blame someone else? Or do you face the issue and resolve it? When friends are maligning someone or being rude, do you step away? Do you take their defense? Or do you join in for the sake of being a part of things? How do you keep the Sabbath day holy? Do you fully strive to live the BYU Honor Code, the Word of Wisdom? If you served a mission, are you still doing the work of the Lord? Or have you slipped back into old habits, 
setting aside daily scripture study and morning and evening prayer? And do you honor and sustain the president of the Church and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles? How do you speak of, support, and follow their initiatives and teachings? These are just a few ways you can spot-check your personal integrity. When you leave this sacred school setting, what will you be known for? The time to decide your epitaph is not at the end of your career, but at the beginning. Right now, will you be moral, ethical, and honest? In Proverbs we read, The just man walketh in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. Integrity shapes a legacy, a path for others to follow. I remember standing on the cusp of a professional life. Today you are putting down your foundation of a great work, your own lives. It is up to you to exercise a sense of duty, a recognition of God's will in your life, and the character best exemplified by the Lord Jesus Christ. Be students of the scriptures, and you will discern what the Lord has in mind for you. Apply His word, and your life will speak of integrity without duplicity of attitudes or actions. I close now with the inspired words of dear President Russell M. Nelson. Mark these words in your heart that you may always believe and remember them. Quote, our precious identity deserves our precious integrity. We must guard it as the priceless prize it is. End quote. As we live lives of integrity, we are sanctified and fit for the kingdom of God. We love the Lord Jesus Christ and His unending example of integrity, righteousness, and exalted purpose. We love our Father in heaven, whose plan promises eternal life in His holy presence if we are faithful. As an apostle of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, I bear witness through my own life's experience of these precious truths. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Developing the Qualities of Our Hearts. We've just heard from Elder Ronald A. Rasband. After the break, we'll return with Michael D. Brown for The Lord Looketh on the Heart. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Developing the Qualities of Our Hearts. Next is Michael D. Brown, a BYU Associate Professor of Physiology and Developmental Biology and Director of the BYU Neuroscience Center at the time of this address, titled, The Lord Looketh on the Heart. As an anatomy and neuroscience teacher, 
I have the great privilege to study and teach about one of God's greatest creations, the human body. I marvel every time I listen to a beating heart or watch an electrocardiogram measure its electrical activity. It is remarkable to me to watch skin slowly repair itself following a scratch or think about where and how memories are stored in the brain. When I was a graduate student, one of my research projects was to study the proteins involved in cell division. I would often watch a set of recently fertilized frog eggs split from a single cell into two, then to four, then to eight. It all happened before my eyes in a dish, without the need of a microscope. It was beautiful to watch. Life truly is a miracle. I feel the Spirit often as I learn and teach about the human body. As I discover more about how the body works, I see the hand of God more clearly in its workings. Consider, for example, the beauty and complexity of the human heart. Our heart beats, on average, 75 beats each minute, 100,000 times each day, 40 million times each year. It tirelessly beats every second of every hour of every day that we live. The heart is the most heavily worked muscle in the body, pumping roughly 2,000 gallons of blood every day through the 60,000 miles of blood vessels in each of our bodies. The heart's valves open and close with perfect timing to ensure that blood moves the correct direction through the various heart chambers and blood vessels. The heart is a marvelous creation. In addition to our physical hearts, each of us has a spiritual heart. Just as a reliable physical heart is needed to provide nourishment to our physical bodies, a reliable spiritual heart is needed to provide nourishment to our spirits. Our spiritual heart draws us closer to our Heavenly Father. It prompts us to serve and love each other as families, friends, and neighbors. It burns with faith and testimony, protects against sin, and gives strength and hope in times of trial. It is the importance of our spiritual hearts that I wish to discuss today. In the Old Testament, following the spiritual fall of King Saul, Samuel the prophet was led to the house of Jesse in his search for Israel's new king. As he looked over each of Jesse's sons, the Lord taught Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Young David, although not as physically impressive or accomplished as his older brothers, was chosen by the Lord to be king because of the state of his heart. The scriptures explain that David had a beautiful countenance and that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. In the Book of Mormon, we read of a great missionary named Ammon. As Ammon taught the Lamanite king Lamoni about the nature and character of God, he explained that God looketh down upon the children of men, and he knows all the thoughts and intents of the heart. I have come to know that this is true. God, our Heavenly Father, knows what is in our hearts. He knows our thoughts, feelings, and desires. He understands our struggles and our strivings. Because Heavenly Father knows my heart and He knows your heart, 
it is beneficial for each of us to take a close, honest look at our hearts. How is your heart doing? Spiritually speaking, is it beating regularly or is it skipping beats? Is it beating strongly or is it weak and thready? What can we do to strengthen our spiritual hearts? I'd like to propose five questions for each of us to consider as we assess the health of our spiritual hearts. First, we can ask ourselves, is my heart pure? In Psalms we read, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. It's not easy to keep our hands clean and our hearts pure. The sins of the world are numerous and ever-present. It takes vigilance. It takes foresight. It takes courage. Elder Dallin H. Oaks taught, Consider the tragic example of King David. Though a spiritual giant in Israel, he allowed himself to look upon something he should not have viewed. Tempted by what he saw, he violated two of the Ten Commandments, beginning with, Thou shalt not commit adultery. In this way, a prophet king fell from his exaltation. Elder Oaks continued, Do all that you can to avoid pornography. If you ever find yourself in its presence, which can happen to anyone in the world in which we live, follow the example of Joseph of Egypt. When temptation caught him in her grip, he left temptation and got him out. There are countless blessings promised to those who keep their hearts pure. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 121, we are taught, Let thy bowels also be full of charity toward all men, and the household of faith, and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God, and the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion. Modern-day prophets further explain, When you are sexually pure, you prepare yourselves to make and keep sacred covenants in the temple. You prepare yourself to build a strong marriage and to bring children into the world as part of an eternal and loving family. Remaining sexually pure helps you to be confident and truly happy and improves your ability to make good choices now and in the future. Brothers and sisters, is your heart pure? Sexual sin, including the sin of pornography, quickly leads to spiritual heart failure. If needed, please repent and become pure. There is no feeling so deeply satisfying as the feeling that comes with complete and honest repentance. In the Book of Mormon, Alma the Younger taught his sons this truth as he testified of the power of repentance. Speaking of the pains of sin and the joys that accompany repentance, he recalled, I say unto you, my son, that there could be nothing so exquisite and so bitter as were my pains. Yea, and again I say unto you, my son, that on the other hand, there can be nothing so exquisite and sweet as was my joy. A second question to ask ourselves during our heart checkup could be, Is my heart soft? 
King Benjamin, one of the great prophet kings of the Book of Mormon, taught his people to become as a little child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him. In essence, he emphasized the importance of having a soft heart. The Book of Mormon provides countless examples of the blessings that accompany having a soft heart and the negative consequences resulting from hard-heartedness. We can learn much from the difference between Nephi's soft heart and Laman and Lemuel's hard hearts. When the Lord asked Lehi to take his family and leave Jerusalem to go into the wilderness, the hard-hearted Laman and Lemuel complained against their father, saying he had led them out of Jerusalem because of the foolish imaginations of his heart. Nephi's response was to pray and to ask the Lord what his will was. I did cry unto the Lord, and behold, he did visit me and did soften my heart that I did believe all the words which had been spoken by my father, wherefore I did not rebel against him like my brothers. A beloved primary song reminds us of another example that shows the condition of Nephi's heart. The Lord commanded Nephi to go and build a boat. Nephi's older brothers believed it wouldn't float. Laughing and mocking, they said he shouldn't try. Nephi was courageous. This was his reply. I will go. I will do the things the Lord commands. I know the Lord provides a way. He wants me to obey. Nephi was submissive, meek, humble, and patient. He was willing to submit to all things the Lord saw fit to inflict upon him. He had a soft heart. Because of this, the Lord praised and greatly blessed Nephi. The Lord spake unto Nephi, saying, Blessed art thou, Nephi, because of thy faith, for thou hast sought me diligently with lowliness of heart. One measure of the softness of our own heart is to look at the extent to which we obey BYU's honor code. Soft-hearted individuals are willing to submit themselves to all aspects of the honor code, even those portions that they do not agree with or understand. Those that choose to reject portions of an honor code that they previously agreed to observe might be demonstrating symptoms of a hard heart. The Lord will bless each of us as we keep our hearts soft. He will strengthen us as we choose to be meek, humble, patient, and full of love. He will lead us and guide us as we show our willingness to submit to the Lord to the will and timing of the Lord in all things. Next, as we evaluate our hearts, we can ask ourselves, do I have a grateful heart? Joseph Smith, in summarizing the very essence of our faith, taught, if there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. It is easier to fill the Spirit of the Lord easier to feel close to our Heavenly Father, easier to want to be good, and easier to be happy when we look for the good in life and nurture thoughts and feelings of gratitude. I am grateful for President Hinckley's example of finding the good and his encouragement for us to do the same. He said, I ask that we stop seeking out the storms and enjoy more fully the sunlight. 
I am suggesting that as we go through life, we accentuate the positive. I ask that we look a little deeper for the good. During the fall of 1992, I was an undergraduate student at BYU. I had been married to my wife, Daphne, for a little over a year, and she was expecting our first child. I was going to school year-round, slowly working through the challenging coursework required of a major in microbiology. Life as a student was difficult. There was never enough time and never enough money. I'm sure that many of you can relate. Thanksgiving rolled around, and Daphne and I were excited to have a short break. We decided to leave town and travel to Fruitland, New Mexico, to visit Daphne's sister Laurie and her family. During the drive down, my mouth watered at the thought of having a full-blown Thanksgiving dinner with turkey, stuffing, potatoes, candied yams, freshly baked rolls, and homemade pies. To top it off, the sister we were visiting was an excellent cook. At the time of our visit, she was also very pregnant with her sixth child and due any day. On Thanksgiving Day, Laurie's baby decided it was time to enter the world. I spent all day watching Laurie labor at home. I helped count the time between her contractions, and my wife and I did what we could to assist her and her family. When she was whisked away to the hospital by her husband to deliver the baby, I knew that my hope of having a good Thanksgiving dinner was gone. With little time to make dinner, those of us still at home pulled out the grill and made French toast. Feeling sorry for myself, I hopped in my car and drove for 20 minutes through the barren New Mexico landscape to the nearest town that was large enough to have restaurants. I was determined to eat something good on Thanksgiving. Upon entering town, it quickly became apparent that none of the restaurants were open. Every single one was closed. I drove back and forth through the town looking for any place that could feed a desperate soul like me. The only place I found open was an Arby's fast food restaurant. As I walked into Arby's, I realized that it was completely empty. The only people present were the workers. And they looked at me as if to say, Poor you! All alone and no place to go for Thanksgiving. During the drive back to Laurie's house, I continued to feel sorry for myself. I had no money. I had no time. I had no hope of graduating quickly. I was driving through the New Mexico desert alone, and I had a lousy Thanksgiving dinner. As I turned the car to the south around a bend, I suddenly became aware that the colors of the landscape were changing because the sun was setting. What I previously saw as a barren desert, I now began to see as a land filled with beautiful buttes, bluffs, and valleys. Suddenly and unexpectedly, I became filled and overwhelmed with the spirit of gratitude. This spirit washed over and through my soul like a warm blanket. The Holy Ghost witnessed to me how incredibly blessed I really was. I felt it so intensely that I nearly had to stop the car. On that lonely New Mexico highway, I felt more powerfully than I had ever felt previously 
the Lord's mercy, awareness, and love. As I look back on this experience, I am embarrassed by my previous self-pity. I didn't deserve the incredible spiritual feelings that I felt on that day. Yet the Lord, in His mercy, saw fit to fill me with His love, light, and understanding. On that day, I learned to stop seeking out the storms and enjoy more fully the sunlight. I learned to accentuate the positive and look more deeply for the good. I learned the importance of having a grateful heart in any circumstance. Another question to ask as we might appraise our individual hearts is, do I have an obedient heart? After graduating from BYU, I entered graduate school to study neuroscience. The first few years of graduate school were difficult. I worked very hard in the research lab but had little to show for it. Results of lab experiments were inconsistent and progress was slow. Because graduating was dependent on research productivity, I was worried that I might never graduate. What was even more discouraging was the job outlook at the time. Getting a job in my field was highly competitive and many graduating PhDs could not find jobs. A few years into my graduate program, I attended an international scientific conference in San Francisco. Several thousand cell biologists had gathered to share their research results and methods. I hoped to network with these scientists and gather ideas and techniques to help me with my own research. One evening, after a long day at the conference, my wife and I were relaxing in an open area of our hotel. To my surprise, seated a few feet away was one of my favorite BYU professors. Several years previous, I had taken two classes from this professor. I loved this professor because not only had he been an excellent teacher of microbiology, but I felt the spirit strongly in his classes. There in the hotel, I reached out to him, not expecting him to remember or recognize me. To my surprise, he not only recognized me, but he knew exactly which seat I sat in when I was his student. I always sat in the very back corner of the classroom. After introducing my wife and updating him about our family, I began to share my concerns about my research and the non-existent job market. With great anxiety in my voice, I asked him for advice. He looked at me straight in the eye and said, Mike, the best way to prepare for your future is to live by your covenants. At that moment, I experienced a great moment of clarity. He was right. The best way to prepare for my future was to live by my covenants. Daphne and I had a great feeling of peace. We were living our covenants. We were striving to be obedient in every way we knew how. We were trying our best to be a loving husband and wife. We were striving to be the best parents we could to our four young children. We were serving diligently in our church callings. We were keeping the commandments, attending the temple, and living the gospel. 
we knew that we could count on the Lord's blessings. Since that enlightening day in San Francisco, I have reflected on my BYU professor's counsel often. My journal is filled with experiences and blessings that are directly linked to my wife's and my obedience to the covenants we have made with the Lord. One of the major lessons of the Book of Mormon is summarized by the Lord in the following way. Inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. But inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, ye shall be cut off from my presence. I offer you the same advice I received, but with my own witness. The best way to prepare for your future is to live by your covenants. The Lord promises to support, guide, and direct those who follow Him. An obedient heart tethers our will to the Lord's and allows us to draw upon the powers of heaven as we walk through life. A final question to raise as we consider our hearts is, are we as individuals, families, and neighbors of one heart? When the prophet Enoch lived on the earth, the Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind. Remember what happened in the Americas following the Savior's visit in 4th Nephi. And it came to pass there was no contention in the land because of the love of God which did dwell in the hearts of the people. And there were no envyings, nor strifes, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lyings, nor murderers, nor any manner of lasciviousness. And surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. There were no robbers nor murderers, neither were there Lamanites nor any manner of ites. But they were in one, the children of Christ and heirs to the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, we are a blessed people. It is a wonderful privilege to have the light of Christ and the restored gospel in our lives. Are we seeking to live our lives with one heart? in our marriages and families, with our roommates and ward members? Or do we allow contention to be in our hearts? Do we seek to serve others while tempering our own needs and wants? Remember, selfishness has no place in a Zion-like people. President Hinckley taught, If we are to build that Zion of which the prophets have spoken, and of which the Lord has given mighty promise, we must set aside our consuming selfishness. We must rise above our love for comfort and ease. And in the very process of effort and struggle, even in our extremity, we shall become better acquainted with our God. As we strive to be saints of God and choose to follow our Savior Jesus Christ, Let us reach out in love and service to one another. May we notice the good in each other. As we do so, we will become of one heart. Let's now review the central questions to ask ourselves as we perform an honest assessment of our hearts. Is my heart pure? Is my heart soft? 
Do I have a grateful heart? Do I have an obedient heart? Are we of one heart? As we consider the answers to these questions, the Lord will prompt each of us by His Spirit. We will recognize more fully and more completely our talents and strengths. We may be prompted to make specific changes. Submissively making these changes will bring us closer to the Lord. I testify of the importance and power of the Lord's Atonement and His ability to change hearts. I am grateful for His love, patience, and mercy. I love Him and know He is my Savior. With all my heart, I desire to do His will and to be more like Him. As the Lord looks on each of our individual hearts, I pray that He will be pleased with what He sees. I pray that He will pour out His blessings upon us as we strive to become more like Him in thought, word, and deed. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Developing the Qualities of Our Hearts with thoughts from Elder Ronald A. Rasband and Michael D. Brown. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.